0: Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hey, listeners, it's Jenny. In light of the case currently making its way through the Supreme Court, threatening Roe v. Wade, we're bringing back the second season of Ordinary Equality. The conversation around reproductive rights has been one of the most contentious political debates in America. From Wonder Media Network... Ordinary Equality unpacks the history of this debate, from the views of Colonial America, to underground abortion networks, to the seminal Supreme Court case Roe v. Wade, and all the way to the present day. Tune in right here on this feed for a new episode every Tuesday and Thursday.
2: There's sort of this perception that women didn't have abortions in the past and that we were somehow better and more moral in the past. And that could not be further from the truth. Women have always controlled their fertility throughout the entire history of time. And the United States and colonial America before that were no exception.
3: This is something central to a woman's life, to her dignity, It's a decision that she must make for herself.
2: From Kansas, Kentucky and North Carolina, dedicated women marched. Abortion is fast becoming the new political fault line. Alabama's governor has signed the nation's strictest
1: abortion ban into law. The Human Life Protection Act outlaws the procedure except when the mother's life is at
0: risk. This bill is not about pro-life or the right to life. This bill is about control.
3: We, go back. we will not go back.
0: And we, the people of the United States of America, documented or undocumented, are having abortions,
4: legal
2: or not. This court will never stop us.
1: I'm Jamia Wilson, writer, editor, and feminist activist. And I'm Kate Kelly, human rights attorney and activist. And this is Ordinary Equality. This season, we're talking about abortion. When it
4: comes to most major social issues in the United States, we're moving in the direction of progress.
1: That's at least if we're taking the long view. But when it comes to the issue of abortion, our trajectory is totally bucking that norm the arc of abortion access is not bending towards justice. Abortion has evolved from something that was just a normal part of women's health care done and discussed in private to one of the most contentious political issues of our day. I don't know about you, Jumia, but I learned a lot of crazy things about abortion growing up. uh, And now looking back and learning more, basically none of them are true.
4: (laughs) And, why is that? That's what I'm so excited about, what we're going to explore. Why is it that we learned such a black and white binary narrative about what abortion is, something that is so commonplace, something that has been experienced for centuries around the world, and yet we have heard a lot of myths about it and don't understand it in our cultural conversation as much as we should.
1: And I think when I think back You know, when you think of old timey times, (laughs) you don't think of things being better for women at the turn of the century or when the Constitution was being written. You think of things being worse. But in this case, that's actually not true. The issue of reproductive health and women's control over their own bodies and on pregnancies is actually something that was better before. And limited access to abortion is more restricted and more taboo than it was before women got suffrage, which I find crazy. It's true. And it makes me think about
4: societies that are matrilineal or societies that haven't, through colonialization or imperialism, bought into a patriarchal narrative how those societies are still maintaining more of the original viewpoints around this issue that we have the freedom to determine what is right for our bodies and that abortion, just like other experiences that one might have in the course of one's life, is a part of the cycle of life. So I am really excited that we're going to unpack this history and unpack how we got to this very limited cultural understanding about this topic in the U.S. because there are many other cultures that think about it quite differently, including the original cultures on the land that we're on here. This season, we're going to take a look at the way that the anti-choice movement has intentionally exploited the abortion issue to manipulate voters. To show how recent this attack on women's health care and our private decisions is, today we're going further back tracing the use of abortion in ancient times and in early America. Then we'll suss out what's changed and who is responsible. It turns out, surprise, attempts to suppress abortion access throughout history have actually been more about suppressing women's rights and achieving political power
1: than upholding any moral belief or lofty ideal. As you learn from Dr. Lauren McIver-Thompson at the top of the show, The historical narrative many of us thought we knew about abortion is completely wrong. The earliest human records
4: make it clear that women have long had the knowledge to make decisions about our own bodies. In the Roman Empire, women were adept at controlling fertility. Here's Loretta Ross, professor, godmother of the reproductive justice movement, and author of Radical Reproductive Justice, Foundations, Theory, Practices, and Critique.
0: Emperor Augustus was complaining about elite Roman women not having enough children, and once I did the research into that, I found that because the Roman Empire had learned all this medical knowledge from ancient Egypt, the Roman women were using knowledge from Egypt to ma- practice fertility control, because so it wasn't that they were having less sex, or, as most historians have ascribed it, it, to be led into drinking water. It wasn't lead in the drinking water. These ancient Roman and Greek women were practicing fertility control, except that there was no attention paid to preserving their voices or perspectives. So we only get men's perspectives. And then you got other men saying, well, it must have been the lead (laughs) in the aqueduct. And I'm giving another analysis of, no, if you trace the medical knowledge that the Roman Empire captured from Egypt you'll see the same formula that the Egyptians were using appearing in the Roman medical literature.
4: Dozens of plants have been used to induce abortion throughout history. Substances like juniper, Queen Anne's lace, and pennyroyal. Infusing minty pennyroyal leaves into a tea, for example, could prevent the implantation of an embryo. This would restore menstruation, as they called abortion at that time. As memorialized by the rock band Nirvana, Pennyroyal tea can induce an abortion, but due to its toxicity, can also be lethal in excess.
1: For those of us who are used to buying medicine at a pharmacy, this may sound imprecise and dangerous. But Professor John Riddle, author of Eve's Herbs, A History of Contraception and Abortion in the West, says that many of today's medicines derive from plants people used to use in their natural forms.
5: And I found out that comparing those drugs to five modern guides, and I found out that 79.5% of what they were using we now know to be drugs. So there's continuity there. How did they discover those? It wasn't in research labs. And so many of our medicines today really go back to folk medicine. They discovered them, modern chemists identified the substance and then could synthetically manufacture it or else tweak the molecules and have a patentable drug. But it was not they in the laboratory that discovered them, it was folk medicine. Mm Long
1: after the Roman Empire, women in medieval Europe used similar practices to control fertility, probably thanks to generation after generation passing on their wisdom and teachings orally. Women in communities, from mothers to midwives, would share information about what plants to consume and how in order to decide when to become pregnant. Women have long been the keepers of the knowledge necessary to control our own bodies.
4: There was hundreds of years of precedent for that on this continent too, within Native
1: American and First Nations communities who were already living here. For example, members of the Iroquois Confederacy, or Haudenosaunee, who had a large influence on the U.S. Constitution like we talked about in Season 1, were well aware of the biological dimensions of conception. They based both their government and religious beliefs in the primacy of women and balanced power between all genders. To learn more, we spoke with an expert who goes by Mama Bear,
3: Okay. All right. Well, um, I think it would be easiest for me to be known as Mama Bear. That's my AKA, but my Haudenosaunee Ganiyat Gahaga name is Waagilagatste, which means hardy or really strong snow. And I'm sitting in a snow belt right now. So I'm fulfilling the meaning of my name. And I'm a third generation condoled bear clan mother in the Gahaga Nation, part of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, and were known as the Eastern Doorkeepers and people of the Flint. Uh, simply said, the role of women in Haudenosaunee society is that they were the law; they were the primordial pillars to law founded. You know, if you're going to found law on precedent, it what it's what came first, right and In our creation story, the earth was created by a woman. It works as a matriline. Uh, My mother was a clan mother. My grandmother was a clan mother. One of my daughters or nieces will inherit the position. So it's a matriline, matrifocal society. And in saying that, the balance of power is held within the hearts of the families. So the clan mother is the the central representation and she's the one that filters issues or matters. Her duties is also to arrange marriages, name the babies in our our lawn houses, to be aware of all the issues affecting her her nationhood. Uh, whether it's land claims, whether it's water rights, whether it's uh, environmental, whether it's legislative laws, border crossing, the list is long, so she has to be up on the issues. And she can call for war, she can call for peace, and she can control the economy. She can also issue warnings to people who aren't behaving. She can also request changes in laws, and also she can control the sexual economy, which means she can determine, or not just she, but women can determine how many babies will be born in a society. So for me, if a woman thoroughly understood her body and how it's connected to moon, earth, and water, she has the ability to undo the pregnancy. But the old ladies also used to talk about a certain medicine that could also help with that, which was less invasive to the body. And at the end of the day, the decision was hers. Because, you know, um, back in the day, they did live in very hard warlike times. Ending a pregnancy for the Iroquois did not
1: involve the machinery of government nor did it have community repercussions. Certainly no man was allowed to have control over that decision. The Iroquois viewed abortion as a mother's wish to save a child from prolonged pain and suffering. In their nations, women enjoyed the highest degree of liberty. Controlling women's fertility would have been impossible because it would have been an overt act of suppression,
3: unheard of in the community. And when colonization hit the shores of the hemisphere. Women also had to determine for themselves whether babies would be able to withstand warfare. So it wasn't until Christianity came among our people that suddenly that it became a sin or a bad thing to have an abortion, and and saying that women couldn't enter the gates of heaven. At the time, we had no concept of heaven. Well, for me, at the end of the day, the woman is the power, you know, she has to assert for herself, her own authority and her own understanding of her body. And it's up to her to decide if she's fit enough to carry a pregnancy or whether she's going to return it to creation. And we talk about, you know, sometimes young spirits come here and they don't even breathe the earth and they turn around and go back. And so for us, a lot of things are spiritual and there's a lot of different variables, but again, the earth is the power. She's primordial and the woman is primordial and she should decide over her own body and it doesn't belong to anybody else.
4: Enslaved black women also passed along knowledge of these ancient techniques, further evidence that methods of pregnancy control were practiced in many parts of the world. Here's Loretta Ross again.
0: I discovered that the kidnapped and enslaved Black women who were brought over in the slave trade actually bought knowledge about contraceptives and abortifacients with them. And so they were secretly controlling their own fertility on these plantations. And where I discovered that was in the records of medical doctors who were brought in to try to investigate why the breeding women weren't breeding. (laughs) And even they said, they have some secret that we don't know about. And so Black women have been fighting for reproductive self-determination since their arrival in this country. As much as
4: the slave industry sought to control their bodies, Black women managed to take control of their own destinies through methods passed down from generation to generation. This, too, has a long-lasting legacy we'll dive deeper into for the next episode.
0: And it was unearthing those histories that gave me the encouragement to continue to do the work and to define how we, Black women cut our birth rate in half right after the Civil War, and the 40 years after the Civil War. Our Black birth rate was cut in half. So there had been evidence of forced breeding, but there was also evidence of agency when we could control our fertility, we did.
5: So
1: from many parts of Africa to Rome to ancient Greece to here on our own continent, herbal birth control, tracking menstrual cycles, and abortion were a part of daily life. They were seen as an extension of the work that many female healers provided. But that didn't change the fact that those in power wanted control over those they saw as beneath them. That led to witch hunts in early modern Europe and colonial America.
5: Well, there are many, many stages. For one, during the period of witchcraft suppression, of the things that the witches were accused of doing, seven items were listed. And six of those seven have to do with sexuality. So when they're burning witches who were predominantly, if any, occupation for a witch was mentioned, it was midwives. So what they were doing is destroying women who were advising other women about childbirth. If you knew these things, they considered them poisons, you would be considered a witch. And so it was dangerous even to know them.
4: And that brings us to the colonies that would become the United States and the beginning of this continent's foray into abortion controversy. As Professor Riddle stated, Puritanical leaders of the early colonies sought to quell female leadership through these witch hunts. They weren't after midwives and medicinal practitioners because they thought abortion itself was wrong. It was all about controlling women's self-determination and autonomy. Early Americans didn't think abortion was wrong, They didn't even think a fetus was a person until
1: pretty late into a pregnancy. What we call conception only entered the public consciousness relatively recently. Early America inherited laws and norms that existed for hundreds of years in Europe. And for them, the big milestone wasn't conception, but quickening. According to Christian
4: tradition at the time, quickening occurred the first time a woman felt her infant move in the womb. That was believed to be when the soul entered the fetus's body. For colonial Americans, quickening was the point at which the fetus was considered a person, and a woman was officially pregnant. The pregnant person got to decide when that happened, because only she could feel it. Before the quickening, women of that era could use any of the techniques to control the fate of pregnancies. They offered these potions and services to each other openly, without shame. Here's Dr. Thompson again.
2: And in fact, there are no abortion laws up until the middle of the 19th century. There's no laws governing abortion at all. In fact, the earliest laws that do start getting passed in the 1840s, 1850s in different states were, you know, local and state laws that were governing the making and distribution of harmful medicines that were meant to induce abortion.
1: It wasn't just that there were no laws restricting abortion. Dr. Thompson's research demonstrates something that is shocking to our modern sensibilities casual advertisements for abortive fashions. They were in nearly all American newspapers.
2: From the earliest colonial period, we have advertising for abortive fashions and birth control items in newspapers. And they used coded language. They often would say things like mother's friend, or they would talk about regulating or undoing a blockage, because that's how early modern people thought about a woman's period. So, so in early America, up through the antebellum period, The advertising and the rate that women used abortion as part of the universe of birth control is really high because that's how you controlled your fertility. In early America, women were were thinking and writing about how it was exhausting to have 10 children in a row. So it's no surprise (laughs) that they were wanting to control what they could in their lives that were otherwise so incredibly politically and socially circumscribed. Right. Controlling how many kids you had was one of the few things that women could control inside their marriage. These ads
1: not so subtly hinted at abortion related goods and services in all kinds of ways you might recognize some of the herbs from the ancient techniques we talked about earlier.
0: Dr. Mott's Penny royal Female Pills. They're the best preparation known for the complete and perfect restoration of the menstrual functions when suppressed by any cause. And they're very powerful in their action. Care should be taken not to use them in pregnancy as they would be sure to cause a miscarriage.
6: Advice to married ladies, Madame Restell, professor of midwifery, having thirty years successful practice in this city, guarantees a safe and immediate removal of all special
2: irregularities
6: and obstructions in females.
2: These advertisements that used this kind of coded language. It wasn't coded because they were trying to keep birth control and abortion a secret and that somehow it was considered totally immoral. The language that was used in these advertisements and in druggist circulars or in moral physiology books, or the language was more coded because that's in general how people wrote in the 18th and 19th centuries. I mean, things were just less explicit. The Comstock laws engendered More coded language later on because people were trying to get past the censors. Okay, hold up. Let's talk about Comstock laws.
1: This is where the centuries of historical precedent of women controlling their own bodies started to change. Comstock laws are the result of a crusade against obscenity that came into full swing
4: in the late 19th century. Named after Chief Advocate Anthony Comstock, a politician, postal official, and consummate anti-vice crusader. In 1895, the New York Times coined the term comstockery, meaning immorality censorship after him. He was like the Inspector Javert of morality police
2: really interesting man. During the Civil War when he served in the Union Army, he was appalled by the fact that so many soldiers were looking at pornography. So that was really what was sort of driving I think uh, his crusade against Vice when he returns to New York in the 1870s. He is appalled by the number of like peep shows and dirty magazine shops that littered the streets of New York. And Abortion and birth control advertising and items just are tacked onto that obsession about pornography. And that, in part, of course, is due to misogyny. The morality that
4: Comstock sought to promote was also in response to shifting norms around women's so-called place in the world. Times they were a-changing, and women were increasingly autonomous. The desire of men like Comstock to keep women in their place through regulation of their bodies started a trend that continues to this day. Here's Katha Pollitt, poet, columnist for The Nation, and author of Pro, Reclaiming Abortion Rights.
6: Women were beginning to become more public-minded. I mean, this had been happening for a while, but they were beginning to, they were joining clubs, they were becoming politically active, they were not... um, just staying home and keeping house. They were, this is middle-class women I'm talking about. They were um, middle-class white women. They, they were actually becoming a social force. And this was not good. <laughs> they should be staying home having more children. And they should especially be staying home and having more white middle-class children because women were beginning to have the smaller families. The birth rate between the year 1800 and the year 1900 went way down way down. And abortion was one of the ways that women use and what they would they would tend to abort the later children.
1: Once again, this wasn't so much about the herbs or the habits of women themselves. It was about controlling their action and freedoms more broadly. It was sort, sort of different than it is now where people tend to abort the first
6: children, the first pregnancies. Back then, it was the later ones. They had they'd finished their family and now they wanted to have do other things with their life. They did not want to have 10 children. Those things coming together with urbanization and just a general feeling of, oh, my God, whatever happened to the old morality? Everybody's just doing what they want. This is terrible. You can buy birth control, again, buy ads in the newspaper. I mean, a lot of things that are illegal now were over-the-counter then, like opium, for example. So then along came Anthony Comstock, and Anthony Comstock was a postal official who got it into his head that he had to stamp all this out. And he got very, many, you know, numerous laws, the so-called Comstock Acts passed in, I think, the 1870s, that made it a crime, not uh, not just to use all these things, but to distribute them through the mail, even information about them, information about birth control, a pamphlet that told people, how to limit their pregnancies, that was illegal now. And that stamped out a lot of the knowledge that had been quite common until then. In a few generations, people really didn't know too much about it.
1: Comstock's obsessive crusade against Vice channeled echoes of the witch hunts from back in colonial America. He pursued one infamous abortionist with particular determination. Her name was Madame Restell. She may sound familiar from one of the advertisements we shared earlier. Restel, born Anne Lohman, ran successful women's clinics beginning in the 1830s. She helped write The Married Woman's Private Medical Companion, which openly discussed birth control and pregnancy termination. Our old friend Anthony Comstock predictably grew obsessed with preventing clinics like hers from operating. He personally went to Madame Restel's clinic in 1878 with a story about his wife who already had too many children. Claiming to be worried about her health, Comstock asked Madame Restel for pills to stop her pregnancy. When she sold them to him, he had her arrested. Tragically, Madame Restel committed
4: suicide the day before her trial. The story was a sensation and highlighted the fact that there were over 200 full-time abortion providers in just New York City at the time. Some estimates state that at least one in every five or six pregnancies was terminated during the years Madame Restel was operating.
1: Comstock put all of that to an end. This is so bananas to me, because today... In the year 2021, there are some states that only have one abortion provider. And so we think back to this time and just in New York City, there were 200 full time abortion providers. That's just mind boggling. And when
4: you think about it, too, when there was the movement in women's liberation and women were learning about their bodies and the self-care That there are a lot of people who were also learning about restoring menstruation the way we talked about that before. And I think now it's interesting to see that we've somehow regressed in terms of our conversation, but also in terms of thinking about abortion as this rarefied thing. Um, And I guess the roots of that are in that trope of the quote stigmatizing safe legal and rare but it's really stuck and it really has warped the way that people perceive something that is and has always been a part of life
1: the laws passed in Comstock's name have had a long-lasting impact on the way birth control is viewed and talked about in our society as they helped create the idea that birth control and regulation of menstruation were deviant acts. And Comstock was not alone. Many parts of the religious world started increasingly getting on board with his crusade, something we'll talk about at length in a future episode.
4: The sexist ideology behind these laws is obvious, but this fight against women's agency was also rife with racism. Here's Dr. Thompson again.
2: And so there begins to be a conversation in part led by American physicians and the American Medical Association about encouraging white women to have more children. And it's very class based, too. They keep talking about how wealthy women are the ones who are purchasing and using and discussing and controlling their fertility and only having one or two children because they can. And poor women are the ones that are reproducing at a faster rate. So class and race gets wrapped up into this discussion about fertility and and who is having babies and who isn't and who should be having babies and who should not be.
4: There were also other forces at work in the movement to criminalize abortion in the United States. Doctors were concerned about their own reputations and influence the American Medical Association was just starting to take shape in the mid-19th century. One way the organization sought to gain professional credence was by insisting women, after centuries of handling our own business, actually didn't know what they were doing. They saw midwives and their incredible knowledge as competition. Uh, What happened after the Civil War, state after state began
6: criminalizing abortion, and that was connected to a number of things. One thing it was connected to was the attempt of doctors who were male to seize everything having to do with pregnancy and childbirth from midwives who were women. And they said, women, are, they're not trained. They're uh, very incompetent. They're terrible. Look at this person who died with this midwife, and we are much better and safer. And, and this was,
1: over time, quite successful. Our current dialogue says terminating a pregnancy is a decision women should make with their doctor. But it's important to remember that doctors are part of the reason our access to abortion was limited in the first place. Newly founded medical schools largely refused to admit women students. Male students determinedly pushed women out of the picture when it came to careers helping women with their reproductive choices. From birth control options to how mothers deliver their babies, women's healthcare was negatively impacted with lasting consequences that still exist today. Here's Dr. McIver Thompson
2: again. So when the first medical schools open and doctors start going and men start attending medical school in order to become professional physicians, um, there's a real push in their professional organizations to ensure that they have professional legitimacy. And so one of the ways that they seek to do this is to make sure that they're the arbiters of all things medicine and health related. One of these things ends up being women's health and relatedly abortion. And so the specialty of of obstetrics and gynecology, it goes from being kind of a a less respected portion of the profession to one of the most respected um, over the course of the 19th and early 20th centuries. They're, They're very interested in ensuring that they are seen as kind of the moral arbiters of national of the national health. Like they put themselves in charge of America's health. And one of the ways that they want to, to keep this power and, and grow this power is by making sure that they're managing women's health and abortions.
4: So in the first 100 years of the United States, the concerted efforts of moral crusaders and the burgeoning profession of medical doctors ensured that men became the arbiters of women's health they took that power out of women's own hands where it had
1: been for over a millennium. (sighs) This is so much to learn. And I think a totally different paradigm for how we think about abortion. Like when you think about it today, after Roe versus Wade, uh, many people use the rhetoric that the decision should be between a woman and her doctor. But now we learn that the reason we don't have abortion access to the same degree that we had it then is because of medical doctors. (laughs) And it's so important because that assumes that all medical doctors are culturally
4: competent, that all medical doctors have empathy for all of their patients equally and are giving equal access, respect and equity to all of their patients, no matter what their race, class, age, or immigration status is. And we know that there are great gulfs of disparity. How can we expect that some doctors who might support oppressive agendas politically even, for example, would be able to even ensure that women would get the information and education that they need
1: to understand what choices they have in front of them? It's so interesting, too, to look back at the more full history of abortion in the United States, when you think about, you know, uh, women who arrived here, uh, women who were colonizers, women who were pilgrims, quote unquote, they came to a place where women already knew how to control their fertility and were already in charge of their bodies. And even in colonial times, women were permitted as women's work or women's healing to take the herbs they needed to track their cycles you know they didn't have the technology but they had the autonomy that's the thing that i think is interesting that we've got so much more technology now but we have so much less autonomy and that lack of autonomy
4: it distances us further from understanding and knowing our own bodies and it's so important that we know the history and that we are connected to the history and the people who are doing that work now and continuing that lineage in current days so that we also don't lose sight of our own instinct, our own knowing, and our own care that we can have for our bodies. I think I think about this a lot in terms of, you know, the medical profession, TM, <laughs> a little <laughs> trademark next to it, because it's really important for us to respect science and to respect medicine. But there's also these realities where It's documented that some doctors have bias around how women of color feel and experience pain, uh, bias around whether or not they take women's uh, comments about their own bodies and what they're feeling seriously, uh, the age-old question of hysteria, and I'm putting in air quotes – And it's really important for us to really understand what we know about our bodies too and what we're experiencing because we're not always guaranteed doctors who are going to empathize
1: or who are going to listen. Everything we've talked about really demonstrates a quite depressing arc and about how the trajectory has always been started from the beginning and is today about power and control. And I know from what you've told me and from what you've taught me that that's true for women writ large, but especially true about the treatment of Black women in America. Absolutely. Absolutely.
4: From the moment the first ship of enslaved Africans touched Virginia's shore in 1619, enslavers sought to control the fertility of the people they enslaved. The institution of chattel slavery not only impacted women's exclusion from the U.S. Constitution in the first place, but also set up a system of men profiting over control of women's reproductive lives. Next time on Ordinary Equality, we'll talk about how that systemic control was ingrained in the United States
1: from its very founding. Ordinary Equality is a Wonder Media Network production, produced by Edie Allard, Grace Lynch, and Liz Smith. Our executive producer is Jenny Kaplan. Editorial support from Janice Formicella. Our original theme music is by Rachel Wardell. Special thanks to Carmen Borca Carrillo. And thanks to Tom Williamson and Cameron Esposito for their voiceover work this episode. As the first female, Black, and Asian vice president of the United States... Kamala Harris is redefining the political sphere. For countless women, her achievement represents hope, affirmation, and the shattering of a glass ceiling that has kept mostly white men at the high ranks of American politics. From Wonder Media Network, host Jenny Kaplan is exploring Vice President Kamala Harris's historic path to the White House in a new series on Women Belong in the House. Jenny speaks exclusively with women experts and elected officials to discuss how Kamala Harris's win disrupts the status quo and what this could mean for the future of women in politics. Listen and subscribe to Women Belong in the House wherever you
2: listen to podcasts.